0: Once upon a time, there was a village, and in that village, the villagers came together and decided to entrust a young boy with all of their sheep. The boy would be a shepherd. And so each day, the boy would make his way out into the fields with his flock of sheep and find himself with a tremendous amount of boredom. Then one day, he had a really great idea. He said, I know. I no, it will stir up some excitement around here. I will call out the word, wolf. And so the boy began to shout and scream, wolf, wolf, a sheep is eating. Or a sheep is eating all the wolves. <laughs> a wolf is eating all the sheep. And the villagers came running out, ready to help him ward off the fearsome wolf. Alas. There was no predator, only a boy holding his sides in laughter. The same pattern continued a few times until one day, as the boy was leaning back against the tree, smiling to himself, feeling the breeze in his hair, he caught something out of the corner of his eye. A wolf bounding across the field, nipping at the heels of the sheep. And so he cried out once more, Wolf! Wolf! And this time, no one came. Now in the, the G-rated version of the story, the boy's just very sad and all the sheep get eaten by the wolf. Uh, in the version I prefer, uh, the boy gets eaten as well. Right? This is a, a story we, we tell our children, most of us the first version to instill in them the virtue of honesty. You can find it in, um, I think mine's called The Book of Virtues. There's a bunch of like stories in it. But but The Boy Who Cried Wolf is a famous cautionary tale aimed at teaching us something. And this morning, what we have before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to cover the first 13 verses, but what we have is a cautionary tale. It is not the stuff of fable, the stuff of forgotten history, dismissed as irrelevant for our lives today. But it's this forgotten history, this cautionary tale that Paul draws our attention to this morning. And what he wants to show us as he builds on his argument that started back in chapter 8 is that Knowledge of God alone is not enough if it is divorced from the love of God. Because the person that enjoys salvation has not only knowledge of God, but love for God. Because knowledge knowledge of God without a love for God will leave you incurring the wrath of God. To know God is to love Him. Paul is going to show us that saving faith finishes the course. And so I'll exhort you in tune with Paul to be the church and to endure in the faith. And I'll suggest that the way you do this is by setting your heart on Jesus. Uh, your outline before you in your insert, if you've got to insert, it's going to follow the pattern of a race uh, because we're actually going to cheat a little bit and go back into the end part of chapter 9 because I think Paul's kind of setting us up for what's about to come. And so you'll see uh, the, a good start, a bad finish, and then a plan for perseverance. And the good start is part of our cautionary tale along with the bad finish. It should come together a little bit. Um, this morning we'll be a little bit like a fire hydrant because we, we're going to be jumping around the scriptures. And so you can keep a finger here in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, the other place that would benefit you to go would probably be Numbers in the middle somewhere uh, because we'll touch on parts of, from chapter 14 to chapter 22 in there. Uh, Book of Numbers, kind of a boring title. Uh, Hebrew title's better. It's In the Wilderness, and so you can put a, a finger in In the Wilderness, chapter 14, and, and a finger here in 1 Corinthians. Let's, let's pray, situate ourselves, and then we will get started this morning. God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. That you would put your word before our eyes, in our ears, on our tongues, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would put a vein of steel in our faith. Lord, help us to hear and learn from this cautionary tale this morning. Help us to hear and learn from you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Paul, I told you, was kind of setting us up last week. Verses 24 through 27 of chapter 9, he employs this race metaphor. has to do with games, and uh, they were familiar not only with the Olympic Games, but with something called, I'll I'll probably mispronounce it here, but the Isthmian Games in Corinth. Uh, They were the second largest kind of athletic competition back in the day. And so what you got when you won these games was that crown of, like, wreath, thorny kind of things, and, and it would fade, and that's what Paul's going to refer to in these verses. And, and so last week he was talking, uh, we saw that he talks about giving up freedom for the benefit of the long run, and we talked about making sacrifices for the gospel, and all of this in the context of from chapter 8, 1 to uh, chapter 11, verse 1, Paul is showing us that love must govern Christian behavior in ethics, Right? That, that, that love is the governing factor as it pertains to the eating of meat. And so he, he was showing us that he had given up his rights in order to reach the Corinthians. And then he was encouraging them to do the same, to give up their rights so that they might not hinder the growth of the gospel. And he says it's a, like an athlete, like a, a runner who disciplines themselves. They give up things so that they can compete at the highest level. And then this week, we're going to look at that from a different angle. We're going to look at his illustration from a different angle. Not only do they give up things so that they can compete at the highest level, but they have their eye on the goal. They, they're going to keep running. They're going to finish the race is, is what he's going to exhort us to. So Let me read those verses to you right quick. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way as to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we, an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and to bring it under strict control, so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so the exhortation that's going to come here is to run in such a way as to finish the race and not become disqualified. Uh, Mike made me aware of a Nike slogan in Sunday school this morning that was around before I was alive, not to give away his age. Uh, But it said something uh, akin to, it's not always who runs the fastest or runs the swiftest, it's the one who keeps running that wins the race. And so so you can keep that in your mind in terms of our exhortation to endure. The, The exhortation is to keep running and take hold of the prize. And so we get into chapter 10 with that as the backdrop. And we will see, who Paul will call our ancestors, Israel, get off to a very good start. Here's what he writes. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors... This is important, this word, ancestors. It's, in some of your translations, it's probably brought across fathers. And what Paul is doing here as he writes to a predominantly Gentile church is he is saying, you are the spiritual ancestors of Israel that came before you. You are part of the same family of God. And I'm going to exhort you to learn from the example of your family this is, this is monumental, and we, we touched on it a little bit when we read Ephesians 2 earlier, that Christ has torn down that dividing wall of hostility, that he has made the two men, Jew and Gentile, one new man in Christ. Paul says a, a similar thing in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. So then, does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard, just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness? You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. He continues down in verse 27 of Galatians chapter 3. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. And so what includes one in Abraham's family is not bloodline, but faith line. It's belief in the promise of God. And so what has always included someone in God's household, what's always saved someone, is faith in God's promise. And so for the Old Testament saints who did not know who Jesus was, but knew that God had promised to save his people, what they did was, by faith, they look for, looked forward proleptically to God's coming promise, to God's coming Messiah, that's Jesus, in whom we are told every promise of God finds its yes, its completion, its fullness. And what we do is we have seen Christ come and we put our faith in God's promise, that's who Jesus is, and we look back retroactively to what he has done on our behalf and we put our faith in him. Later in this passage, Paul's going to say Uh, something what culmination of the ages in verse 11 ends of the ages and what he is speaking to here is that all of the ages all of these things that have happened all of time was looking towards the coming of jesus christ and now that he has come it can properly be said that we are living in the end of days however long that might take two thousand plus years in fact we are in the last epoch of time, if you will, awaiting the return of the king. But he, here's the point of, of what I, I want the point I want to make. We are tied to those who had faith, our ancestors in Israel. And it's important to notice that not everyone in Old Testament Israel loved God. Not all of them were at peace with God, despite the fact that they had experienced the amazing grace of God, right? We we learn this in Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. Not all who descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. And so Paul is going to show us how some that were descended from Abraham rebelled against God despite their situation in and among God's people. All right? He said, learn this. Because you, Christian, you might be among God's people find that your heart does not belong to God. You might have experienced the amazing grace of God in a very real way, but it's possible your heart has not been changed. Be warned. And so Paul starts our cautionary tale. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ what what is Paul doing here he he is interpreting the old testament in light of Jesus he's giving us a bit of an analogy What he's saying is our ancestors were in Egypt and they cried out to God for salvation. God heard their cries and then he delivered them with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand through the ten plagues, the last of which was the death of the firstborn, save for those who took shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb. Then he took them by Moses' Moses leadership to the sea where they would be hemmed in as Egypt's army approached, and they were like, what are we going to do? And Moses then said, God, deliver us. And Moses raises the staff and the sea parts. And then by their trust in Moses, by their identification with Moses, the people of Israel walked through the Red Sea to safety on the other side where the water of the Red Sea came crashing down on the Egyptians and killed them. Paul is saying, in the same way that the Israelites identified with Moses, in the same way that they put their trust in Moses by walking through water, likewise, the Christian puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they identify with Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism. With me? He's also, the the cloud, all of the, the cloud and the sea, all of that's so closely knit together in Exodus, as we saw, that it speaks to this same kind of experience. And in verse 3, you say they ate the same spiritual food. Spiritual food, remember, they had manna provided for them in the wilderness. And then and we see they drank this water from the rock, which was Christ. Jews speculate, some of the rabbis speculated, that there was this rock that actually followed Israel around from place to place throughout the wilderness experience. I don't know. Um, It is certainly interesting to note that their experiences in the wilderness are kind of bookended by um, an experience with the rock and getting water from the rock. In Exodus 18, 17, 18, somewhere in there, uh, the people are complaining as they are prone to. And they're like, we need food, We, we need water, Moses. They're getting ready to stone Moses to death. And Moses says, God, we need water, do something, they're about to kill me. And God says, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to stand before you on the rock and you are to strike the rock and water will pour forth from the rock. And Moses does this and the people have water, water that sustains their life. But it was at the expense of Moses striking God himself. And the idea was this pointed us forward to Jesus who would be struck for our sins so that we could drink Living water. Later on, Moses is actually prevented from entering the promised land because he's told to speak to a rock uh, to, to bring water forth for the people again after they've been wandering around for a ton of time. And instead of speaking to it, he strikes it. And God says, This disobedience, because of this disobedience, uh, you will not be able to take the people into the promised land. But here, I think Paul is employing this language of spiritual food and spiritual drink to tie it to the second of the ordinances or the sacraments or whatever word you like to use to describe uh, communion or the Lord's Supper. Right? He's saying, just like you have gone through baptism when you professed your faith and began following Jesus, you had an experience of God's power. You followed him in baptism. You had an experience of God's power, and so you participate in communion. Likewise, your spiritual ancestors, Israel, had a baptism. They went through water. Likewise, they ate spiritual food, manna and water in the wilderness. And so what he wants us to see is they, they got off to a good start. They've experienced the power of God. And he's saying, you have experienced the power of God too, But look what happens in verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. This is the understatement of the century. Like, it's going to continue. Since they were all struck down in the wilderness, like, literally, everybody from a generation of people dies except for Joshua and Caleb, right? Y'all remember they send spies into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb roll back, and they're like, this is awesome. We're going to go in. We're going to wreck these fools. We're going to take their land and obey God. It's going to be so good. And then the other guys are just like, this is terrible. We're like little insects be- before these people. They're giants. And they, they, it's really poetic language, and they're like, we melt before them. And, and they're really worried. We can't take this land. And then they actually rebel, and they're, they're like, hey, let's get a new leader. We're going to go back to Egypt. Right? Like that's what their, their plan is, and uh, God takes over. But the point is, is that you have, because of the disobedience of these people in Israel, an entire generation dead in the wilderness. Right? Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Uh, one of the commentators I read translated the last part of that verse, their corpses were scattered throughout the wilderness. And that's what we're going to see in verses 7 through 9 is different instances that brought about the scattering of their corpses throughout the wilderness. But let's deal with verse 6 first. Paul writes, Now these things took place as examples for us. Why? So that we will not desire evil things as they did. And so the problem that leads to Israel's idolatry, the problem that leads to Israel's death, their rebellion against God, is that they desire evil things. see, at the root of sin, I find two common themes. One is the abhorrence of authority, and the other is disordered loves, right? Disordered loves. For the people of God, for the Christian, Jesus is to remain our highest love, right? Uh, in in Deuteronomy, uh, the, was it Deuteronomy six? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, He's one. You should love Him above all else. And Jesus tells us in Matthew twelve, the most important commandment is this: Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. You live according to what you desire. Red Augustine said that we always act according to our strongest desire, and I think he's right. And so when you get your loves or your desires out of order, your life gets out of order and you'll go after lesser pleasures and so dishonor God if he is not made the number one priority in your life, in your heart. They craved, another way you could translate it, they craved evil things. I like to think about it through this lens uh, just because uh, I always think of pregnant women have cravings. Chelsea doesn't really have a whole lot of them. Uh, maybe some cookout here and there. But, but you know how that like you hear stories of, you know, in the middle of the night she wants me out to get pickles and ice cream or, or whatever it is. Like, there's a, a craving that has to be satisfied, this desire that has to be fulfilled. And the desire of Israel... Who had experienced this awesome work of God, the desires of many of them were not for God. No, instead, they craved evil things. And we are to learn from their example. Look at verse 7. Don't become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party or play or dance. And it's not dancing like you think about. The partying or playing here uh, is a, a um, community-wide orgy, uh, pagan worship ceremony that's going on, right? Uh, you could translate it today. It might. The people sat down to eat and drink and Netflix and chill, right? That's, that's how that verse might read today. In Exodus 32, which we walked through, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's getting the uh, wedding license from God, if you will, the instructions for building the temple, and it's as if while he's up there getting the wedding license, the people down in the valley with Aaron are committing adultery on the honeymoon. They say, Moses has been gone for a minute, create for us God's Aaron. And Haran says, oh, okay. Uh, and and they, they forge a bull out of the fire. He puts the bull before the people, and he says, these are your gods that led you out of Egypt. And everybody says, amen. And they, they mimic the worship ceremony that had come before in Exodus chapter 24, I believe. And so they've made God in their image. God, Moses was taken too long on the mountain. He didn't like the schedule that God was operating according to. And so they thought, we need to tweak this deal uh, and get him to work how we would like him to work. Right? Paul deliberately picks up this language, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play, party, dance, because that's the exact language that's used in Exodus 32. He's drawing our attention back to that. And significantly, I think the word eat, right? This all takes context, Takes place in the context of eating meat that's sacrificed to idols? That's the big question in chapter 8, and Paul has said love needs to govern our behavior, and, and, and he's talked about it, and he says, you know, to the Jew, I've became like a Jewish person. To the Gentile, I became like a gentle person. To the weak, I became weak, and what he meant was to the person that thinks eating meat is a sin, I didn't eat meat with them. To the person that didn't have a problem with it, I ate meat with them, and so I, I, I said it. Last week or this week, sometime, I, I thought of it like this. Uh, when, when he's with Jews, he doesn't eat bacon. Uh, when he's not with Jews, he does eat bacon. And so when he's with somebody that thinks that's sin, he's, he's not going to participate. But now the focus is going to, in chapter 10, shift a little bit to participating in cultic worship, cultic meals that are offering worship to another god. And Paul is, is tying that worship of another god through eating back to the worship of another God through eating and drinking and partying in Exodus chapter 32. And so he's telling the Corinthians, he's speaking into their current situation, he's saying, your situations aren't that different. You've experienced the grace and power of God, but now you are being tempted to remake God in your image, to put God together with some other elements of your surrounding culture. I think naturally, uh, we all Try to remold God in our image or our culture's image rather than remembering that we are made in His image. We, we all long for, live for a connection with God. But at the same time, we desire evil things. We prefer our authority to God's authority. And so we try to make Him in our own image so that we can Create him so that he can't create him, so we can control him, so he can't make any demands on our lives, so that he can't judge us for our idolatry, for our evil desires. Paul continues in verse 8, he's going to give us a second example. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. I'm just going to read uh, this passage to you. It's in Numbers chapter 25. It's the first nine verses. While Israel was staying in the Achaia, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods and ate and bowed and worshipped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal, sometimes called Baal because the Hebrew diphthong is is hard. It's hard to put together those vows. Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses told Israel's judges Kill each of the men who aligned themselves with Baal Baal. I almost did it there, Baal of Peor. An Israelite man came, bringing a Midianite woman to his relatives in the sight of Moses and the whole Israelite community while they were weeping at the entrance of the, of the tent of meeting. When Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw this, he got up from the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite man into the tent, and drove it through both the Israelite man and the woman through her belly. Then the plague on the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. Numbers are a little off there. I just think Paul rounds one way. The author of Numbers rounds another. Point is, God's judgment comes on idolaters. Comes in Numbers 25 here when they are worshiping uh, temple prostitutes. The gods of Moab, it happened in Exodus 32. Remember, Moses causes the people, he, he grinds up their idol in the water and makes them drink it, the original Goldschlager. He, he is saying judgment, you're drinking judgment on yourself. And then the Levites go through the camp and slaughter those who refused to turn back to the Lord with the sword. Judgment comes in response to idolatry. And then we get to verse 9. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Don't miss Paul's Christology here. Paul is saying what you would have read was done to Yahweh, was done to Jesus, that it's one God and three persons. There's a Trinitarian flavor here. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. This account comes from Numbers 21, verses 5 and 6, right? the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this wretched food. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. Unbelief is met with the judgment of God. Verse 10. And don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. This particular verse, the reference is a little bit more obscure, but if you just read Numbers chapters 14 through 16, you go, Israel is always complaining. And they have plagues and judgment comes upon them. Right? Initially, uh, lots of folks think this is number 16. That's Korah's rebellion. If you remember, Korah's like, I'm going to help take the people back to Egypt. Moses, who are you to be our leader? You're self-appointed, and and we're going to rebel against you. And Moses is like, we'll see who God's man is. We're going to have a little test. And they have their little test, and the earth swallows up Korah and all those associated with him in judgment. I think it's more likely, though, that this comes from Numbers chapter 14, uh, where, remember in verse 5, we saw God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. I think this refers to in Numbers 14, he proclaims uh, the verdict on Israel because of their complaining and their grumbling and their unbelief. That's where the spies have come back. And he says, none of this generation is going into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. And then a plague comes among the people that's eventually stopped. God's judgment is his right Ruling against evil and sin. God's wrath is his right response to evil. And when those who were among the nation of Israel chose to participate in evil and long for evil things rather than for God, he rightly brought judgment on them. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. Here's the point. Just as God did not tolerate Israel's idolatry, so too will he not tolerate your idolatry. God Judges sin. He judges it. He judges it rightly. And, and it's funny if you look back at the law when we, we worked through the law of God, we, we said a, a number of times if you just keep the first commandment, you don't break any of the others. If you just love God above all else, just don't make any idols, you will not sin. but we are a sinful people. We will make anything into an idol. Typically it's good things. talked about it before. Family, friends, sex, power. Turn them into idols and and we worship them and desire them above God. But God judges sin. And friends, Left to ourselves, we are no better off than those who were in Israel and without faith in the wilderness. Because we too desire evil things. Our hearts are evil. To try and, and keep the law of God and earn God's blessing is an impossible task for us. I mean, to keep God's law and earn his blessing, you'd have to go your whole life, your whole life, not just from here forward, but your whole life without breaking a single one of God's commands. Without sinning. I mean, I don't know about you, but but I'm not going to make it through the day without sinning. I'm probably going to, I'll go home and maybe have lunch. My kids will probably make a mess or something and I'll get unrightly angry with them. Like something's going to happen and I'm going to sin. We, we, We need something more than just law-keeping. See, we we need a heart change. We need a Savior. And that's what God has given to us in Christ. You see, we we see these warnings in Israel's past. We see that they're negative warnings. They failed. But in Christ, we see story of Success. So let's, uh, let's turn over to Matthew 4 for a second. It's a little risky. I'm going off the beaten path here. So, Matthew 4, Jesus has been driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tempted by Satan. Let me just read it to you. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was, that's Jesus, was hungry then the tempter approached him and said if you are the son of god tell these stones to become bread you are hungry eat you want it jesus answered it is written man must not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of god Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and began to serve him. Do you see what's going on in the temptation of Christ? He's tempted in the same way that Israel is, but he does not sin. He's tempted in the same way that Adam and Eve were in the garden, but he did not sin. He's tempted in the same way that you and I are each and every day, but he does not sin, not once. Jesus keeps the law for us. He's the true and better Israel. He does not put God to the test. He does not complain. He does not worship idols He does not grumble about food. He believes and he trusts God. He succeeds where the people of Israel failed. He's the true and better Adam. He succeeds where Adam failed. Remember uh, the very similar temptations used by the devil for Adam and Eve. Jesus tells... Satan tells Jesus to turn the stones into bread so he can eat. And Satan says to Adam and Eve, look how delicious that fruit looks. You should eat it. So here's the common thing. You want it, you should eat it. Adam and Eve say that sounds good. Jesus says, no, I will obey God. I live on his word. The devil tells Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit, you will not surely die. And he tells Jesus, here. Throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple. You will not surely die. Adam and Eve believe him and they eat the fruit. Jesus refuses. Do not test the Lord your God. Lastly, as Adam and Eve culminate their rebellion, they believe Satan rather than God. And as they are eating the apple, they are in worship. Of the serpent in worship of the evil one that which you obey is what you worship whatever you obey is what you worship Jesus however will refuse to worship Satan he succeeds where Adam and Eve fail where Israel failed and where you and I fail he is the one through whom we have salvation when we unite ourselves with Him by faith. See, He lived the life we were supposed to live, perfect in every way, and earned the blessing of God. And then He died a substitutionary death in our place, taking the wrath of God that we had earned. There's a great exchange that happens when you put your faith in the cross. His death becomes your death. His life and blessing becomes your life. The Gospel in four words, we always say, is Jesus in my place. We put our faith in Him is how we get a heart change. It's how we are able to honor God and not fall victim to this cautionary tale from Israel's past. And so the question that we are invited by this text to ask ourselves is, do I really belong to Jesus? Is my heart really His? Or have I just experienced the power of God? Do I just come to church? Am I just around and among the people of God? Or is my heart really His? As friends, we know but God keeps those that He calls. Right In the beginning of Corinthians, God will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful and He keeps those that He's called, but the question that you have to ask yourself is, has He called me? Do I really believe? Is my heart really His Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine ourselves and to make sure that we are in the faith. Are you? Look at verse 12. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. Faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Important to note here, God, th- this is, a, is speaking to not circumstance but temptation. And it's telling us that God will always provide for us a way out of temptation. You, you never have to sin. Never have to sin. And there's, there's two principles underneath these last two verses. One is that we need to recognize that we are capable of sinning. You're capable of sinning. And it, it's really easy to say, I would never do that. Yes, you would! But for the grace of God. Really easy to get arrogant and say, I'm never going to fall. And Paul is saying, don't do that! Because that proceeds sin. Sometimes in my house in the evenings, I, I play a game with my children uh, wherein I am cast in the role of the stay-puffed marshmallow man, right? You guys have seen Ghostbusters. Somehow, I, I, I don't know, but I pretend to be the marshmallow man and I walk around and I basically tickle them. And after a while, uh, they get emboldened And they will do this thing where they'll just latch on to my legs, like, you know, like Kennedy will get on this one, and Owen will get on this one, and they'll just be kind of holding me there. And I'll think to myself, these kids, no chance. Like, don't they understand, like, how much bigger I am than them? And if we were really fighting, that would be the case. But we're playing. Never fails. Then Caden and Elliot come over, and they knock me off balance, and the other one's behind me, and I fall to the ground. But I couldn't help but envision that in this verse. What Paul wants you to do is to take sin seriously. Don't think, I could never fall prey to this or that sin. Take it seriously. And when it starts to coil itself around your ankles, flee from it. You'll see that in verse 14, flee from idolatry. Get away from it. Find a way out so that you don't fall. Friends, Jesus is the way out of your temptation. The way out of every single temptation you ever have is a white-hot affection for Jesus. Because when you love Jesus, with everything that you are, you see sin for what it is. A wilderness full of rotting, corpses. Jesus is always the way out. He's the way into God's mercy. God's judgment is never without mercy. Really quick here, I want to take you back through those examples and show you that God offered mercy in each and every circumstance. As it relates to Exodus 32, there was an opportunity for the people to come those who are with the Lord to come to Moses' side. And those who did not, those are the ones that fell by the sword of the Levites. In Numbers 25, 11, let me read this to you. Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, he's the one who drove the spear through the guy and the gal, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites because he was zealous among them with my zeal so that I did not destroy the Israelites in my zeal. Therefore declare, I grant him my covenant of peace. It will be a covenant of perpetual priesthood for him and his future descendants, because he was zealous for God and made atonement for the Israelites. Jesus is a better priest than Phineas. He doesn't kill us, the idolaters, but instead is killed for us. Don't get it wrong, though. He will return the second time more zealous than Phineas could ever be for God's reputation and God's glory. And he will judge sin. He came the first time to bear judgment for sin, for all who would trust in him, and he is returning the second time to bring judgment to those who will continue in rebellion. Numbers 21, the serpents. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord, so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. Jesus says of that account in John chapter 3, verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. The mercy of God comes through Jesus. The way that you inherit eternal life, the way that you come into peace with God, is by putting your faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus. By coming to His side. By lifting your eyes and looking to the cross. That is where your faith must be if you are to finish the race of salvation well. Don't miss this cautionary tale. Paul wants to show you that you may be in danger if you love evil things, if you desire evil things more than Jesus. He wants us to look to Jesus as our way out and to flee from idolatry. And so even though you might have come out of the gates of the Christian life running pretty hard, let me exhort you to endure. Endure persevere, keep running. Because true faith is faith that endures. Those who are called by Christ will be kept by Christ. I'm out of time, but if you want to know the answer to how do I know if I am saved, you can talk to me or somebody else after. Um, There's a great book that talks about those things in the back. I can't remember which one. Probably who is Jesus. Um, Pick one of them up. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is pressing on us and molding us into your image. We thank you that relationship with you, peace with you, and peace with one another is as simple as believing in our heart and confessing with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us to believe that. Help us to live that. Give us a desire for Jesus rather than a desire for evil things. Help us to flee from idolatry and to worship you alone. Thank you for the cross. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.